Thank you. My name is Mildred, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I'm from Toronto, Canada. I'm a member of the Don Mills Group in Toronto, and uh, I'm really glad to be here. Several people have been asking me if the ice storms hit us. Not in Toronto, they didn't. They hit us in Montreal and Ottawa and in Kingston. Fortunately for us, Toronto did not get hit. I thought of, you know, the differences yesterday when... Uh, we were landing here, and I saw the green grass and the, and the uh, golf courses and the palm trees and so on. It's really lovely to be in this kind of atmosphere. Uh, and I thank you for inviting me to come here. Vicki was telling me last night at supper that one of the goals they set for this conference is to treat the speakers well. And trust me, they meet that goal to a very high degree. Thank you so much. I am really grateful to be an alcoholic. And if you're new, you probably think you'd like to go and throw up your breakfast. Or you're probably sitting there nudging somebody saying, I think she should be locked up. Let me assure you, I am no stranger to being locked up. Having been locked up at least 32 times that I know of, for periods ranging from five days to five months, Sometimes because I wanted to be there. Sometimes because other folks wanted me to be there. And where's there? Well, it was mental institutions, psychiatric hospitals, and insane asylums in my country and yours, and once in jail. And for an ex-na, I think that's not bad. wake up in those places, not knowing how I had gotten there. Sometimes the rooms I wound up in had an architectural deficiency. There was a knob, but it wasn't on my side of the door. <laughs> Sometimes I would wake up and I would be tied to the bed, and trust me, it was not for fun and frolic. <laughs> they diagnosed me. They said that I had schizophrenia. Well, didn't everybody hear voices? Nothing new to me. They said that I was paranoid schizoid, that I was schizoid paranoid. They said that I had an organic personality disorder. They said that I had a chronic personality disorder. They said that I was manic depressive manic and manic depressive depressed, just depending on in what state they brought me into the institution. And accordingly, they gave me treatments. At one time, they decided shock treatments would be the order of the day. One time, they gave me 25 of those things. Another time, they gave me 13. And I'm convinced it was at this time the song was written, You Light Up My Life, because they did. <laughs> the sad part of that was that I would, as I would be sitting in line waiting for the next shock treatment, I would be terrified, and I would be sitting there bathed in sweat because I knew what was going to happen to me. But I would be sitting there thinking, thank God nobody asked me if I drink too much. Now, if that doesn't qualify me as an alcoholic, I don't know what does. <laughs> and then along came the man who said, we think that you're alcoholic. Perhaps you should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the good news. I thought that man really deserved a reward, and I gave it to him. I married him. <laughs> My life began on a farm in Saskatchewan, which is like the prairies. 
I was a girl, obviously. I was Roman Catholic. I was German, and I was the youngest of ten children. And other than that, my life was fabulous. I hated who I was. You know, Bob talked about that last night. I didn't, I didn't like the family I was in. I didn't like the church I was in. I didn't like anything about who I was. You know, we hear this from the podium so often, do we not? I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I didn't like where I was. I didn't like who I was. I felt that I was a square peg in a round hole, and I didn't know what to do about that. You know, I can't tell you that I came from a bad home. I didn't. There are ten of us in, the fa in this family, and two of us became alcoholics. The other eight are very normal, well-adjusted people. How does that come about? You know, I don't come from a dysfunctional family. My parents were not bad. As a matter of fact, my parents came from the United States. My oldest sister is still an American citizen. They were fine people who lived their lives with integrity and decency, and yet I sat in the middle of that family trying to figure out what was wrong with me. I do remember that at three and a half, approximately, I became aware that the person that I loved most in the world, my retarded sister, cried every night, and she would crawl into bed with me, and she would say, Mildred, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? And I would cry with her, and I would say, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die in the cradle? You see, she came to me because I was a little child. I didn't have discriminatory faculties, and I, I was empathetic, and so she came to the person that she felt she could communicate with. I believe it was at this time that the, com the committee was established in my head because I felt that I should do something about this problem. I felt that it was my responsibility to make the crying stop, and that if I could just find the right formula, people would do what I wanted them to do. And so I would go to my brothers, and I would say, when you go to those dances on Friday night, you should dance with Dora. See, again, I didn't explain, and this has been an ongoing problem in my life. I expect you to be a mind reader. I didn't tell them what was happening at night. I just would go to them and I would say, you should dance with Dora. And then Friday night would come and they'd all go to the dances and they'd come home and I'd be waiting. And the door would open and I would say, did they dance with you? And she'd say no and she would start to cry and I would cry. And so I believe I got my first impressions of life. And the committee in my head said things like this, you're no good. If you were worth anything, you could make this stop. You're a girl. You're nothing, and nothing will ever happen to you. I didn't know it at the time, but it was at that time I believed that fear was born, and fear rode my life for a lot of years. And I wouldn't have identified it as fear. I would have called it blame. I would have called it rage. I would have called it all kinds of things. I didn't understand that I, at that time, became a very fearful person. And as such, I took on a, a, a self-direction. You know, and our book says self-reliance fails us. That self is the root of our troubles. And I truly believe that self was the root of my troubles. But I didn't understand it then. In our book, in Step 3, it talks about the, the fact that sometimes we alcoholics 
are actors. We're trying to do good things. We're not always trying to do evil things or bad things or whatever. And I think that was me. I was trying to do what I thought was a good thing. I had no knowledge of anything like this is somebody's journey. This is what she has chosen. This is her her commitment with her creator. This is my commitment with my creator. I didn't know any of that. And so my life went on. At five years of age, I found alcohol. And I have to tell you, I thought I died and went to heaven. Alcohol was always in our house. I was not afraid of alcohol. As a matter of fact, my home was nicer when people were drinking. My father was a stern German authoritarian man. Now, why did I put German in there? I don't know. But I saw him as, as being that way. When he had booze in him, he danced and he sang and he pinched my mother's bottom. And he was easy. He was nice to deal with. And I wasn't afraid. And then I have a brother who's now sober 46 years. And he was a real pain. When he wasn't drinking, I didn't like him. He sat in the corner and he was uptight and he didn't have much to say. And I couldn't see anything very nice. And when he was drinking, it was just the opposite. He, too, danced and sang and he had nice things to say and he'd set me on his knee and he'd give me money. And I loved it. And then when I picked up booze, I found out that there was a God. You see, it changed the way I felt. All the problems that I perceived myself to have at that time, and to me they seemed to be large, seemed to go away. Because booze allowed me to function. It allowed me to be the way I wanted to be. It loosened my tongue. It enabled me to just do anything that I wanted to do. I wanted that feeling that I had. It enabled me to deal with my sister. It enabled me to deal with my family. It enabled me to go to school. See, I don't think I ever thought sober again. I come from a family that has a lot of alcoholics in it. My maternal grandfather died in Illinois in the early 1900s because there was no Alcoholics Anonymous. I have an uncle who was shot. I had an uncle who died in um, a swimming accident, so it was called, but it was really booze-related. And then I have my brother, and I'm sure one way or another my father could very easily have turned into an alcoholic. I don't think he ever did. But what I'm saying is I come by this easily. But I wasn't afraid. I didn't know that then. And I used every opportunity from the first time that I tasted alcohol and experienced what alcohol could do for me. I used every opportunity that I could to drink. By the time I was 18, you can well imagine I was full-fledged. By the time I was 18, I also knew that my hope for changing my life didn't seem to materialize. I was raised as a Catholic, and I don't know if I heard what they said or if I think I heard what they said. It doesn't really matter. I don't remember them telling me that God was mean. I don't remember them telling me that God was nasty. What I do remember is this. They told me that God was love. And I could go out into the, into the outdoors in Saskatchewan, and if you want to see beautiful sunsets and beautiful sunrises, and if you want to see the aurora borealis, you won't see it any more beautifully than you will in Saskatchewan. And I would sit out there, and I would see this beauty, and I, would, I could believe that God was love. And then they told me that God was power. Well, there you've got a winning combination. 
if God is love and God is power, then why doesn't he fix the world? Why doesn't he fix my sister? Why doesn't he fix this family? Why doesn't everything become nice and loving just the way it should if this world is ruled by a God who is love and who is power? My little mind could not understand it. I didn't know what I can tell you this. I was confused. And at 18, to show you how confused I was, I decided to go to a convent. If you're a drinking alcoholic, don't go to a convent. If you're a girl who doesn't like women, don't go to a convent. And if you don't like to be regimented, don't go to a convent. This was the early 50s, and convents in those days uh, had not changed the way Vatican II eventually brought changes to them. It was like um, a semi-monastic convent that I went to, and um, I was drunk the night I entered. You know, I think back to that. I had no sense of propriety. I had no sense of anything. I lived to drink. I lived to try and fix my life. And so to go to a convent and be drunk didn't seem to do any harm. Uh, They took me, which probably shows as much about them as it does about me. I stayed there for 15 years, and I have to say that I was drunk a good portion of that time. But, you know, at this time still, booze enabled me to function. I went to university, and I became a musician, and I, I got degrees. And I studied theology, and I studied philosophy, and I ran the choirs in the, in the churches. And I was the organist, and I trained the servers, and I drank the mass wine. Thank God for mass wine. And I was always close to the bell tower, so I'd always have somebody who would deliver my booze to the bell tower of the church. And that's another whole story which I won't get into. Let me tell you this. I never, I never really wanted for booze. People say, how did you get booze in the convent? Come on, if you're a red-blooded alcoholic, how did you get booze? I did the same. I lied and I cheated and I stole. How do you like that? And you thought that everything that was going on under those habits was pious and holy. <laughs> In 1965, my father died, and I went home for his funeral. And in those days, we still wore the big black and white outfits and, you know, lots of stuff on the head and the, and the long gowns. I was not exactly low profile. I went to my father's funeral, <laughs> drunk, and I remember walking down the aisle after the casket, and my two brothers just had me jammed in between them, one saying to me, For God's sake, sister, you're drunk. And I remember thinking, why is he so excited about this? Doesn't everybody need a little help to get through an event like this? Well, needless to say, by the time I got back to Ontario, Mother Superior had heard about this, and she called me, and she said, would you like to leave the convent? Of course I'd like to leave the convent. I didn't know why I would like to leave the convent. I didn't know where I wanted to go. Because I basically knew that my problems were not with the place I was living. Somewhere, deep down, I knew that my my problems were inside. But on the surface, we decided, yes, I would leave the convent. We wrote to Rome. I got my dispensation. I was no longer called Sister Mary Eugenia. I no longer had to keep the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience and the the prescriptions of the Holy Rule. And I remember standing on the convent steps January the 10th, 1966. Some of you weren't even born at that time. Thinking, 
life is going to be better now. Well, I'll tell you it wasn't better, but it sure was different. You see, what I didn't know was truly understand with all its ramifications and implications that the problem was within me. I left the convent an innocent person. And in 10 months, I have to tell you, I was no more innocent. I had experienced every form of degradation that a person can experience. And I remember thinking, you're bad. It was at that time that I signed myself into an insane asylum, which really was a copy of the snake pit. And my brother and sister found me there, and they took me to the West. And that is significant because I went to another psych ward where I met the man who was to become my husband, a psychiatrist. Wouldn't you know? I can tell you I was not too tightly wrapped, but neither was he. Anybody that would... Anybody that would date me at that time could definitely not be tightly wrapped. You know, my friend Phil in California says their neuroses were complimentary. The rocks in his head fit the holes in hers. And I always think that's such a great description of the way we lived at that time. You know, I think often we say, well, I had a relationship with so-and-so. What I had was a parasitic entanglement. We were two parasites feeding off each other. I was 18 years younger than he was. He needed my youth, and he was on staff at the university hospital, and he was on staff at the university. And so I had an easy way into a way of life that I felt I did not have an entitlement to. And so we sailed off into the sunset, and I can tell you what I did not know was that he too was alcoholic. And our life together was disaster. I would like to blame him, but I really cannot blame him, you see, because I've learned I'm not a victim. I draw to myself the things that I need for the learning that I came here to do. And so he was perfect for the learning that I had to do. And um, it was at this time I started going to AA. I was in Prince Albert at the time, and many of you, I'm sure, know Cease. Cease was my first sponsor. I went to meetings there. And I loved Alcoholics Anonymous. See, my brother had come into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1951, and when I came home from the convent to visit, he and the mayor of our town played some records for me. I think it was Father Joe Fail who had written some books, the Golden Books, and he had made some records. And my brother was so excited that he was sober and that he'd found this wonderful thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And at that time, my family didn't know that I needed Alcoholics Anonymous at that time as badly as he did. So that had been my first. Now I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I loved it for three weeks. See, I, I love Bob's talk because it, my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is so much like Bob. You know, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous thinking that drinking was my problem. That's what they had told me. My mother used to say, you're such a nice girl. If you'd only stay sober, everything would be fine. And so now I'm sober. I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous for three weeks. I have two earrings. I have to come home with two shoes. I know where I was the night before. I know what I'm going to do, but it lasted three weeks. And then life hit me. My emotions hit me. The way I was living hit me. You see, 
I believe that when I began to drink, I stopped growing. I think all semblance of trying to make sense of life, of trying to fit in, of trying to go through the process that Bob described so well, stopped cold. And I think I was about five years old. And you can't live in an adult body with a five-year-old mentality. Something has to change. And I believe at that time I really was not capable yet. What I had found was pills. That's not my problem, so don't get nervous if that's not what I'm going to talk about. All I will say is I sat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for five and a half years stoned. I can tell you this, it just interferes a teensy-weensy bit <laughs> with the way you hear the steps and with the way you practice rigorous honesty and with the way you get involved with these steps. You know, I'm glad I was around at this time because uh, I was doing all the stuff. You know, when I came in again, I heard people say things like this. All you have to do, honey, is don't drink and go to meetings and everything's going to be okay. I was doing that. I wasn't drinking in 1966. I was going to meetings. Heavens, they even let me do 12-step work. I used to go out to the women's jail. I carried the disease, not the message, for sure. <laughs> But they kept me busy, and they all knew what I was doing, and it was this time that I, too, met Chuck Chamberlain. And Chuck used to take me aside, and he would say, and when he waggled his finger, and he called you Miss Mildred, you knew you were in trouble, and he would say, Miss Mildred, you already are everything that you can be. You remember that message, don't you, Bob? And he'd say, and you already know everything that you can know. And I didn't hear anything else. That was just absolutely too mind-boggling. And he would laugh and he would say, you don't understand that, do you? Well, that was the understatement. He would say, the day will come when you will understand that. And so I drank again, and that brought me to DTs, convulsions, and all the kinds of disaster that I won't go into except to say I couldn't stop. There was a time in 1966 when I thought I knew what bottom was, and when I came here in 1973, May the 18th, I had no idea where bottom was, I can tell you. Because I remember winding up in a psych ward, and uh, there were two men sitting at the foot of my bed, and they really were there. One was a psychiatrist, and one was a private detective, and they who had been hired to find me. And um, here I was, one more time in the psych ward. Sunday morning, the nurse took me to um, she took me to the washroom, and I saw myself, big black eyes sticking out like this, and I was black on blue all the way around. I had teeth knocked out. And when I tell you that I was a nun for 15 years, that is not what they taught me in the convent to live like that. That is not what my mother and dad had taught me. That is not what I was taught in catechism when I was a little girl, to live in a world that would do those kinds of things to me. And I said to the nurse, I have become a woman of the streets. And you see, with all the theology and all the philosophy and all the studying that I had done, I just could not understand what was going on here. I should be living a different way of life. And, of course, again, my conclusion was I'm bad. And when she took me back to the room that morning, I made a decision. I'm going to take my own life. Because there was a line in the sand, and the line in the sand said, you have no job. The sheriff had taken everything that we had. I had my clothes in, a, in a, two plastic bags, 
and uh, everything was gone. And I thought, there's nothing for me to do except go live on the streets, and that I was not willing to do. So the alternative for me seemed to be to take my own life. And it was at that time that I had a spiritual experience. I didn't used to talk about this, because I, I don't know why. I was afraid to say it, but this is exactly what happened that morning. I was 40 years old. I had been drinking for 35, and I can tell you that if I could be drunk, I would not be sober. I didn't know how to be sober. I didn't like the feelings I had. I didn't know how to live. I was a child inside. And it was at that moment that the, the compulsion to drink was lifted in the presence of whatever that great being was. And I knew the compulsion to drink had been lifted. I knew that it had been lifted. And I remember saying, whoever you are, I won't drink again. But you're going to have to send somebody to show me how to live because I've never been successful. You see, there was the truth. It's not the drinking. It's not the drugging. It's the living sober and clean that I don't know how to do, that I cannot tolerate, and I don't know how to do it. Send somebody, and I swear to, as I stand here, there was a rap on the door. And a man stood there, and he said, I saw you at breakfast. He said, are you an alcoholic? Now, let's not get good too fast. <laughs> I said to him, yes, do you want to make something of it? He said, no. He said, I thought maybe I could take you to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, absolutely not. And he said, would you go to a treatment center? And there weren't many treatment centers in Toronto at the time. There was a hospital called Donwood, who had, which had been started by one of the pioneers in the field of, of um, treating alcoholics. And I went through my mental file, and I said, no, I haven't been there. And, uh, but he planted the seed. And so I left that institution, and by a series of so-called coincidences, two weeks later, I was in that institution. Now you have to remember, I was bitter against God. I wanted nothing to do with your AA God, with any kind of God. And it seemed that this institution was good for me because they didn't, they didn't talk about a power greater than yourself. They didn't talk about God. They, they talked psychology and about your emotions and how you could handle your feelings and all that kind of stuff, and I could accept that. You know, friends, I have come to believe over the years that I have been sober. It'll be 25 years on May the 18th, 19, this year. As the days have gone by, I have come to believe that we, each of us, have a custom-designed life. I believe that truly we have come here in a contract with our Creator to do some work. And I believe as I look at my life that everything just fit. The teachers showed up when they needed to show up. I surrendered. Like that morning, for example, I was going to take my life. How do you account for the fact that that's the morning that you make the commitment to sobriety? I have to believe that there's something much more important going on in this world than what appears on the surface. Like people, I hear sometimes people say about the spiritual part of the program, I don't know that there's anything but a spiritual program. Everything about it is spiritual, and I think that's the whole purpose of our being here. Look at our steps. 
what do we start with? We start with powerlessness, and what is the 12th step, which I believe is the promise of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I will wake up spiritually, that I will wake up from the nightmare of life. See, because I believe that a life in which I am trying to manage, in which I am trying to be the ruler, and I believe that is really my main character defect, I want to play God. I want to be God, and it can't be that way, and that was the pain of my life. And the whole process in Alcoholics Anonymous has been dethroning me, getting rid of my self-direction and my self-reliance, and turning my life truly over to the care of God and letting that divine process go on in my life. How else do you account for the statement in the chapter to the Agnostics, in the chapter more about alcoholism, where Fred says he came to the conclusion that spiritual principles would solve all his problems? Stupidest statement I ever heard, unless I'm a spiritual being. If, if, if all that's going on is we make money and we have kids and we live and we die and we have a good life, if that's all it's about, it's about being good human beings, then that statement is crazy. We should throw the book out. And if it really is about what Step 12 says, that as the result of doing these steps I'm going to change, as Bob explained so well last night, I just love your talk, Bob. I need to hear you so often because it puts me back in, in the frame of what it is is trusting what it is that really is happening here. You know, remember when you came to the program, I don't know what state you were in. I was living on Skid Row. My husband was sitting at home. He was depressed. He said, I can't work. And I really believe that. I was out making $2.20 an hour, which didn't pay food sometimes. It put a roof over our heads, but that was about all. And sometimes there was no food. There just wasn't. And where am I? Oh, you know, I don't know what, what, where your bottom was, but that was my bottom. And to come into the program and say, here, we have the solution for you, the 12 steps, uh-uh, that isn't what I need. I need money. I need a man. I need a job. I need respect. I need some fame and fortune and all that kind of stuff. If you had said to me at that time, here are the 12 steps and here's a million dollars, I don't have to tell you which I would have taken. <laughs> Thank goodness nobody came and offered me the million dollars. See, because in this custom-designed life, there were things that I had to learn. I learned them through poverty. I learned them through people who came into my life. See, I've had hundreds of hours of therapy, and I think therapy has a place. But the way I was using therapy was not the way I think therapy is best used. There were all kinds of people that listened to me whine. I had it down to a science where even the chief of psychiatry listened to me and had his students listen to me. Because I could tell you why, what my parents had done and the impact it had had on me and then what my brothers and sisters had done and what living on the farm had done. I had it all down to a science. And then I went to Donwood and there was a psychiatrist there. And I went to him one day to tell him that I was going to commit suicide the night before. And he said... If that's what you want to do, go do it. But he said, stop, you're whining. 
You know, sometimes I think we're afraid to tell the truth because we think we have to take responsibility. It was not his responsibility. He told me exactly the truth. He took the measure of my soul. He took the measure of what I needed to hear, and he said it. And he said, if you need help, he said, here's my phone number. I'll give it to you. 24 hours a day, he said, you can reach me, and I will respond. I'll help you. But he said, you've got to help yourself. And then there was the woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. God, she was nervy. She said to me, you are the most ugly, self-centered person it has ever been my misfortune to meet. (laughs) Me? I'm the victim. (laughs) I said to her, you can't talk to me like that. I'm an ex-nun. And she said, watch me. And she went on to lay my behavior out for me. So there was poverty. There were people like that who came into my life. There was moose who said, it's not important what you think of me. It's important what I think of you. And there was Ted Lynch, who's gone on to the next dimension. And Ted used to say, do the do things. And there was nobody there anymore to listen to my whining. And finally, I got the message, you've got to change. And my first sponsor used to say, your husband may not get well, but you can get well. This is an individual thing. You've got to do your own work. And then she went out and got drunk. How do you like that? You know, but I didn't follow her because I listened to her. She had it right. I stayed and I continued to do the work. And after about six months, the third P came into my life, the program. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would like to tell you I came for noble reasons. I didn't. I came like the prodigal son came out of the pig pen because he thought it would be better elsewhere. I came out of my life and into Alcoholics Anonymous because I was lonely. It had been a long time since anybody had welcomed me into their life. I was desperately lonely. And one day I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you tell me we don't have a custom-designed life. A God who gives us each our own individual fingerprint, I believe, also cares about us and lets things happen just the way they should. I think that's truly the meaning of step two, that this power greater than ourselves is in the process of restoring us to wholeness, which we have separated ourselves from because I don't think, I know God never has separated himself from me. I was the one that slammed the door. Anyway... I love the fellowship. God, I love these meetings. And if I could have sat at these meetings forever, I would have. But it can't be that way. And so I had to go out and make a living, and it was cold. And I'd run back to the meetings, and I'd keep running back. And one day my sponsor had gotten drunk, and I talked to two of the fellows uh, who I had befriended me particularly. And I said, what's wrong? I'm waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning with a football in my stomach. And they said, you need to do the steps. See, I think it's great to come to meetings. And understand me, I love meetings. I believe that my father is here. And I believe that when I come here, I can put down my bag of stuff. And no matter what's going on out there, I get some respite. I can come here and feel loved and feel that I'm with people who understand me and whom I understand. But I've always got to go back out there. And they said to me, the steps will will change you. And I did what I was told. 
You know, the book says that alcohol beat us into a state of submission, and I believe life beat me into a state of submission, too. Because as I was not drinking, and I was not drugging, and I had no compulsion to do so, life wasn't changing that much, and I didn't know how to do it. And they said, it's an inside job. And I'd hear Moose say this again and again. It doesn't matter what you think of me. It matters what I think of you. And I'd follow Moose, and I'd say, what does that mean, Moose? And he'd say, life is from the inside out. you got to change it in here, and when you change it inside, the outside gets fixed. And you've been doing it all wrong. You've been trying to change the outside, hoping that's going to make you feel better. And you know, up here and said that and sat down. Maybe some of you wish I had, because that's really the story of my life. And so I did the steps, and I changed. I changed enough to move on to the next level. And I remember, I've got, still got my first fourth step. The other day I was cleaning out a file, and there it was. And I looked at it, and I, I went back, and I took a journey down memory lane to that first fourth step and how hard I worked on it. And when I was done, I wrote at the bottom, Wow, this is good news. I'm the problem. <laughs> Didn't have to drag you around anymore. Didn't have to do all that manipulating stuff that I had done all my life. Now, let me tell you, the next 24 years, we're not free of manipulation. You know, we don't change all at once. That's what the process is about. But at least I clearly saw what the situation was, that I was the problem and that if I changed, everything was going to be okay. And the day after my one-year medallion, I don't know if you have medallions we do in Toronto, the day after my one-year medallion, I had finished my steps. The voice said, look in the paper for a job. I'm a teacher by profession. I taught high school most of my life and college. And I had thought, because I was thrown out of my last school, and I thought I would never teach again. The voice said, go look in the paper. And I saw a job. I didn't see anything but English teacher. I phoned. And I went for the interview, and you know, that morning, I was as together as I ever have been in my life. They couldn't wait to get my signature on that piece of paper. And I'm telling you, when I got into that school, I realized that I was teaching emotionally disturbed adolescents, and the biggest one was at the front of the room. <laughs> See, I was sober only a year, and I didn't know how to live. And you know, I want to right now express my gratitude for all the wonderful people who have come through my life, all the wonderful people, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, who've taken me aside and shown me better ways to live, who've given me the tools so that I can take my place and live like a decent human being amongst decent human beings. You know, when I first came in, I would tell anybody that would listen because I was so embarrassed about my clothes and my where I lived and everything about myself, my excuse was, well, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, today, I'm so glad I don't have to do that. If I need to say it, I can say it with pride. And this program has given me the, the ability to change and to take my place rightfully among other human beings. It's no longer an excuse for being less than, than what I can be. And so that was a learning experience. And now I'm sober seven years, and I have started to speak and been invited to speak at conferences, and I'm sponsoring, and I'm busy at my group, and I'm in love with AA. And um, 
I need to do the steps again. I've paid off my debts. I paid off my husband's debts. We were separated by that time. And uh, I paid off his debts, and I paid off our debts because I wanted my name clear, and my name was squeaky clean, I can tell you. And I had my old rented furniture, and I had the old rusty car, and I'm sober seven years, and I'm sitting there angry at the world and my sponsor. Thank God for sponsorship. Not the namby-pamby kind, but the kind of sponsorship that is, you know, that takes you where you need to go. And he said to me, we need to go through the steps again. And we went through the steps again. And for me, at seven years, that, that was an experience of releasing my anger. See, if we look at our lives, you see how, how you dealt with yours. I dealt with mine by burying everything. You didn't, you didn't, uh, in my household, talk back to my father. I felt about my father the way Bob described. He was my hero, but I was afraid of him. And if my father said, move, I moved, no matter how I felt about it. I buried the stuff with my sister Dora. I buried everything. And here at seven years sober, my sponsor said, it's got to come out. And we did the steps again. And this stuff, it was like spewing out garbage. And every time that I've changed inside, I've changed on the outside. I finished that process, and it was as if I had the wind on my back. You see, up to this time, as I said, I had the old rented furniture and I had the old rusty car. One day, I walked over to another school where a friend of mine was, and she said to me, You know what? You should start buying houses. What? I had no money. She said, you know, I'm going to talk to you about the tax laws. Come over on Saturday. And she said, we'll talk about what my boyfriend and I are doing, and we'll explain it to you. Well, that was Thursday. Saturday, I went to see them. And the following Saturday, I had my first house. And it was, you know, it was amazing. I be- In a very short time, I became very rich. I remember the first house I sold. I had this big check in my hand, and I had never had that much money, not that I had made. It was a great feeling. See, I think that God provides us with everything that we need to grow up. I don't think it's about making money. That wasn't what it was about, but it was a new experience to look at that and say, that's the fruit of my labors, plus the grace of God, of course. And I said to the gentleman I was seeing at that time, we've got to take a trip. And I went and I bought first-class tickets and we went to L.A. and we stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel and we went first-class and it was fabulous. Never had done that kind of thing. If I did that kind of thing before, it was on somebody else's money. And so for eight or ten years, this just went on. You know, and eventually the tax laws changed in Canada too and I made some stupid mistakes because I got careless. I forgot that this was the gift of God, and I lost a lot of that stuff. But you know what? It was a great period. It was a great experience in my life. It, it was another part of me growing up. And then I'm sober 17 years, and I'm speaking in the South, and I hear this conversation about doing the steps again. Watch out when you hear these conversations. <laughs> got back to Toronto and said, I've done the steps. Just forget about that. And it wouldn't let me rest. I kept hearing this. you got to do the steps again. you got to do the steps again. 
So I talked to my sponsor and we did the steps again. See, I think that each of those experiences, the first time it showed me who I was, that I was the problem. The second time it released a lot of that old anger that had been buried. And this time it released something else in me. I could see clearly that there was a way that I had to go, and I didn't know what it was, and that was has been the unfoldment of the last six or seven years. When I was 20 years sober, I knew that I had to say goodbye to a gentleman I'd had a wonderful relationship with for a time. But you see, I'm not good at telling the truth about my emotions. I did not tend that relationship, but you know, I'm not beating myself about that. I think there's a time when we're ready to do that and every piece fits into the puzzle. And I began to realize that I had not told the truth in that relationship and that between the two of us who had started out so much in love with each other that a big, thick wall had grown up and that we couldn't talk to each other. And the wall was so thick that neither one of us really could work at taking it down, so we said goodbye. And then I knew that I had to give up my job. I had to give up my job because I had to let go of what and find out whatever was out there. And I remember closing the school door in June of, I think it's four years ago, and going into a place that I can only describe as the desert. You know, the, the mystics tell us that our feet need to get put to the fire. And Bob talked about walking through the fire last night. And I didn't know anything, really. I had no idea what was happening. I just knew that I felt totally alone on the planet. I felt as if I didn't amount to anything. I, didn't ha I don't have children. I'm not leaving grandchildren behind. I didn't have a job. It just didn't seem that I had done anything here. You know, it seemed to me that I was in the position I was as a little child where I could say, you know, if I got off the planet today, nobody would miss me. Nobody would even know that I had been here. I don't matter. I'm not going to analyze that except to tell you that that was the case. And I'll tell you the only right thing I did was I have always continued to come to my home to Alcoholics Anonymous. I have through good days and bad days. I have come here when I have had lots to give, when my heart has been singing. And I've come here when I sat in the front row, 21 years sober, crying. And people would come up and say, what's wrong with you? And I'd say, I don't feel good. You know, and couldn't he couldn't really even explain what was going on. And then the day came when um, I made up my mind to take my life. I just I said I've done I've done everything that I know how to do to the best of my ability, and I I just can't get through this. And I remember lying there that day. And I hadn't made my plans, but if I decide to do something, I'll do it. And as about six o'clock at night, I put out my hand, and there was a notebook on beside my bed. I don't know how it got there. It really isn't important. Maybe I put it there earlier. I don't know. I just picked, felt this thing, and I picked it up, and I opened it up, 
And there in my handwriting were these words that I had written sometime earlier, Mildred, can you make the pain go away? And I had written, absolutely not. Mildred, can you take your life out of the toilet? Absolutely not. You see, because all my life, that committee up there kept saying, and it didn't matter how many degrees I had, it didn't matter what kind of success I had, it didn't matter whether my bank account was big or small, the, voice up, the voices up there said, you're nothing. You don't amount to anything. And, you know, I wished I was a man, and I thought if it were this and if it were that, those were my solutions. And there I was, Mildred, can you take your life out of the toilet? And one more time, it was written there, absolutely not. And one more time, I had a spiritual experience. And the depression left me. And in its place came a joy so great that I find it difficult to even talk about it. And I got dressed and I went to my home. I went to my meeting. And there I was with my people and I continued my life. And I can only tell you that this process has gone on because that was the beginning. Things started to happen that I can't, I can't account for. For example, the Jesuit who called me and said, would you like to come here and give a retreat? And I said, Father, I can't do that. I've been excommunicated God knows how many times. He said, I didn't ask you that. He said, I asked you, would you like to come and give a retreat? And so out of that has come a whole new way of, of doing things, a whole new service to humanity. I speak, get to speak at conferences. I get to do big book studies. I get to do all kinds of things. I get to work with retired teachers. I work at a hospital now of, for cancer patients and um, as a volunteer. And I'm thinking of joining hospice. And as the days went by, my life started to unravel in a new way. I started to hear that word surrender, surrender, surrender. Steps one, two, and three. You are without power. Lack of power. That's your dilemma. And we don't get power because we're sober 24 years or 25 years or 30 years. It's still the power of God that flows through us. And if we allow that process to happen, then I believe that great power manages our life and starts to bring us to wholeness. And in step three, I make the decision that I'm going to cooperate with that process and let God take the lead and not get out of the boat and say, I know how to do this better. I was speaking at a conference in Pennsylvania this past summer, and there was a, a it was an outdoor conference, and there was a stream running through the property, and I walked out there for a bit because before I uh, went to speak. And just kind of on a whim, I threw a twig into the, into the brook, and then I followed the twig. And it was really interesting to me to see where the current took that twig. Sometimes the twig moved quickly. Sometimes the twig moved slowly. Sometimes the twig went parallel to the, at right angles to the current. Sometimes the twig was turned around and was moved backwards. A couple of times it got stuck on the shore, but always the current came back and kept it moving forward. And I thought, how much like my life that is. If I could just see myself in this boat and let that current carry me where it needs to carry me. The last piece of this puzzle, and then I'll close. I have to tell you that those voices still spoke to me. You're nothing. You don't amount to anything. You know, and if you listen to those little voices, you know what yours are. I know the way mine sounded for a long time. 
And I used to try and fix that. I used to read, and I would I would take seminars, and I would do all kinds of things like many of you have done. And one night I went to a meeting. Do you ever feel that a meeting is there just for you? That if nobody else heard the message, you did? That night I sat there and there was a man talking and he said that he was filled with rage, that all his life he had been rageful. And he came into Alcoholics Anonymous not believing anything, but his sponsor told him to kneel down in the morning and to whatever might be out there to ask for help and to kneel down at night and say thank you. And he said, I was sober a year. And he said, I was still full of rage to the wife, to the kids, to clients, to workers, to everybody that came across my path. And he said, one morning I was so fed up with myself that when I knelt down and said, whoever you are, help me, he said, help me also not to be rageful. And he got up and went about his day. And he said, that night, he hadn't thought about it anymore. And that night when he knelt down to say thank you, he realized that he had not been rageful that day. He said, that's all I had done. And you know, it was the message I needed to hear. You think with your smarts, Miss Mildred, that you can fix your life? You think that you can make things okay, that you can make yourself feel right the way you want to? You think that you can take depression away and you think that you can rule your life because you are planning it? And you know what? I think now about little tomato seed. You know, it's just a little black seed, just a tiny little thing, and you put it in the ground, and what happens? It sprouts, and you get a little plant. And that plant grows bigger, and it gets yellow blossoms, and it gets green fruit, and the green fruit grows bigger, and it ripens, and you open that beautiful red fruit up, and there are hundreds of seeds in that. Now, you take that bush, and you look at all the tomatoes on that vine. Tell me, what has a little black seed got to do with the fruits? I don't know how to do that. My part would be to plant the seed and to tend the little plant so nothing harms it, and to let this great God, who is really what this is all about, I believe it's a God deal from beginning to end, let that God do for me what I cannot do for myself. You see, and that is getting rid of the self-centeredness. What have our lives today really got to do with where we were five days ago, three years ago, 30 years ago, 45 years ago? Could you have brought your life to where you are today? I have to say that it seems to me that just as that miracle of the little seed becoming the rich, ripe tomatoes is way beyond my comprehension. I can't figure it out. I don't know how to grow tomatoes. I just know how to plant seeds. And the same thing applies here. I come here and I do the things that I'm told here. I follow these principles to the best of my ability. And what I'm doing is really opening myself up for the miracle that takes place. And to finish what I'm saying, I was home two years ago because Dora has been such a large part of my life. And Dora cannot read. Dora lives a very circumscribed life by comparison with mine, for example. 
if you think we're talking about what's on the outside. But I believe God's grace does its work. It doesn't need my smarts. And shortly after this experience at the meeting where this man said, you know, he had just surrendered, I was home, and as I was leaving, which is totally uncharacteristic of her, I kissed her goodbye, and I hugged her, and I could feel her, you know, I could feel the pain of her life. And I was going out the door when she called me back. She said, Mildred, come here. And I went back, and she said, Do you still cry yourself to sleep at night? And I said, No. And she said, I don't either. And I left, and I got on the plane, and I thought, What does that mean? And I think what it means is that if we surrender and we show up one day at a time, this wonderful work of this great architect goes on and we grow and we change and we become what it is. You know, like Dr. Jung said of Roland Hazard, he had separated himself from union with God. And I think that's what the whole process is, bringing us back to where we really see, as it says in the big book, that God is everything. God bless you all. Thank <laughs> you.